Welcome everyone back to another fabulous episode of Peds Ortho Podcast. This is Josh Holt that's coming from Iowa City. We have um, Dr. Mark Seeley joining us from Geisinger Health in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. So Dr. Seeley, it's a pleasure to have you on the program with us today. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, guys. Yeah, we're excited to dive into a lot of the work you're doing. Um, you know, just talking beforehand, you had mentioned your excitement and interest in, in education and certainly the study that we'll talk about today is geared towards training not only uh, orthopedic residents but maybe even training ourselves on how we can be more accurate and precise with some of the some of the work that we're doing pleasure to be joined by one of my co-hosts one of my co-hosts currently julia welcome to the show with us today yeah this is julia sanders from children's hospital colorado and i'm i'm back with you after maternity leave so super excited to be back in action on the show We'll first get to know Dr. Seeley just a little bit. So, you know, we were talking about beforehand some of the different roles that he plays and some of the unique opportunities and trials that he may have being at a healthcare system that's a little different than the traditional university program tied to a university kind of tertiary care, state-run hospital. Julie and I are both more in that traditional setting now, but Dr. Seeley, do you want to just take a few minutes, introduce yourself, um, maybe where you did some of your training and then what your, not only practice, but maybe what sort of the, the healthcare atmosphere that you're in now at, at Geisinger? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I should uh, warn people, I just got done with a major uh, Nerf gun battle, and I think my three boys are looking for revenge. So if I start screaming, it's because I'm getting pegged with <laughs> Nerf darts. So I grew up in uh, Troy, Pennsylvania, which is a small town in northern Pennsylvania, and I went to the University of Rochester for undergrad, really for all intentions to play basketball, and quickly found out that basketball just wasn't going to end me up at the next stage. So uh, we kind of switched gears and started studying neuroscience, and that kind of got me intrigued in just like how we learn and then how we process things uh, uh, which might not, it's not always consistent amongst uh, that, us as individuals. So the uh, from there, I went to Jefferson Medical College and uh, met my wife. I needed someone to essentially cheat off of. We studied together and then we couples matched out at the University of Michigan. And that's where kind of the, the interest in pediatric orthopedics started to take place. And uh, I give a lot of credit to Michelle Kerr, Ying Lee, Bob Pensinger, you know, a lot of people that have been very instrumental in just framing, you know, how to approach, you know, patients, but also uh, your practice and whatnot. Uh, from there, I went to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where things just continued to be cultivated and uh, really helped get me to the next level. So, Fast forward, I've been in practice at Geisinger now for almost 10 years, um, and uh, the practice is very different. I do do adults. A lot of my practice is, uh, you know, hip preservation in the older teen, early 20s patient population. So a lot of hip arthroscopy, surgical hips, and uh, PAOs. Uh, but, you know, I still do bread and butter, you know, pediatric orthopedics uh that comes through the door. So how to train individuals in this kind of scenario is a little different though. The system itself just got bought out by Kaiser. 
Uh, so we are a health system that has its own health insurance plan. So there is a lot of emphasis on like how you do value-based care, like how do, like training an, an individual, how does that actually impact the system and reduce costs? Uh, mainly is a large portion of like how we think about things. So when we are doing or teaching techniques, it's like, okay, how can we one, impact the learner, but two, how does that save us on uh, the downstream side of things in, in the system? So that's kind of me in a nutshell, and I'm sure we'll get into uh, more of it. So. Perfect. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. I know you've been traveling and doing some other visiting and lecturing in other states and such. So we appreciate you carving out some time and we're happy to have you on the program. So as, as a, I would say pretty broad pediatric orthopedic surgeon, um, one question that we always like to ask that's always interesting is what case uh, you're most excited about or most case that you look forward to doing the most. I'm going to ask you the opposite and I'm going to ask you what case is it that even now 10 years into practice gives you just a little bit of pause that gives you a little bit of a little bit of stress still makes you think a little extra hard for. Yeah, I think uh, the case that I would do, you know, a hundred of in a day and still be happy is a trigger thumb release. I just love a quick operation that has very consistent outcomes. The case that I get most excited for though is like, you know, hip scope PAO or hip scope derotational osteotomies. I just think it's awesome to look inside of a hip uh, and then, you know, do uh, a procedure to try to help offload kind of the stuff you assess on, on the inside. The flip side of that is those also do give you probably a lot more anxiety uh, just because there's a lot of, you know, steps and nuances that, you know, each time I do it, I'm learning something more and something different. Perfect. And then on terms of uh, travel, um, I know you were, were visiting just out of state a bit, but if you could travel anywhere, um, anywhere in the world, or try to convince someone else that, that they should take the time and spend the money to travel somewhere in the world, where would it be? I would absolutely do Australia. Part of my basketball uh, days, I had a, one of my teammates who went over and played professional basketball over there. I thought just everything was just absolutely cool. Uh, but then just talking with a lot of people that have trained over there, then Shore, Andy Georgiades are, are just like people that come to mind. It's just, it seems like such a, you know, great place to be, you know? So I hope at some point in my, my years to come, uh, I can venture over there and actually do more professional things. So, yeah, I, I can certainly second that and vouch for that. Australia is a great place. I had spent a few years there myself. Um, and then last question, um, you mentioned potentially getting drilled in the head by a, by a Nerf gun. If you could paint the perfect weekend for you and your family, you said you have three boys. Is that right? I have four kids, three boys, one girl. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So what would a perfect weekend with the family look like? Yes. Without a doubt, my place where I find inner peace is on the water. So it could be on a lake. It could be in uh, an ocean, but it's probably going to involve a boat me trying to knock my kids off either water skis or a tube uh, and then some form of like hamburger hot dogs you know grilling so that is my picture perfect uh weekend and you know things that i look forward to perfect sounds like we have uh, a whole lot in common a whole lot in common that's exciting well um 
It's a pleasure to have you on. And as we typically do, we're really going to try and highlight this uh, article that you have um, just now, this month's edition of JPO. Um, and it's something we've talked about a little bit on the program before with some of the educational and kind of training and, and simulation techniques and, and kind of the the future of orthopedic training being um, different ways of learning rather than simply in the operating room the first time doing something. But uh, I thought this was an interesting uh, application of simulation and a relatively simple way to assess our ability to gauge what we're doing. The article that you have kind of answers the question of what it's about, but it's called The Eye of a Carpenter, How Well Do Orthopedic Surgeons Estimate Angular Measurements in Derotational Osteotomies? So quickly, you guys essentially, I don't know if this is something you fabricated in your lab, but you have this um, assessment tool, which is a, a femur that has been osteotomized and has different markings on it to be able to assess rotation. And in doing that, you use both orthopedic surgeons, residents, and trained orthopedic faculty and compared them with non-surgeons, non-medical personnel, or non-orthopedic non personnel to see who is better at judging their rotation at various different degrees. And then also compared markings on the bone versus K-wires to kind of judge that rotation. So um, using this instrument, I think what you guys found is again, something that can and should be applied to learners, both that people can learn. And if you teach them a way to assess something, they can learn from it. But then also, maybe we're not as good as we think we are at a lot of the stuff we do. So uh, now that I kind of laid the groundwork a little bit, I guess, what's the highlight of what you found in your mind, the most important finding that you guys came up with? Yeah, so this study, I, I want to make sure I give a shout out to uh, the lead author, uh, one of my med students at the time, Nathan Chaklas, he's actually doing the Ben Fox Fellowship down at Penn or at uh, CHOP right now, and he's just doing amazing things. So um, just like a, a motto I live by my life is just surround myself with people that are a lot better than myself. Um, and on this paper, I, I, I look at it and I'm just surrounded by people that are just, you know, they did the bulk of the work and did amazing things. Uh, you know, Ben Wheatley is my collaborator collaborator at Bucknell. We have done a ton of research over the past nine years, um, and we do a lot of kinematic and functional analyses and kind of lower extremity um, stuff. So this kind of came out of, come to, and said, what would be a good research project? I have a, a background in engineering, and it's like, okay, well, this concept has come off of like, how well do we actually teach turning a bone? You know, it's like the most important part or the key step of uh, derotational osteotomy and yet, it's something that I, I, when I try to teach it or like, you know, actually do it, it's like, okay, are we doing it exactly the way I preoperative plan? You know, the whole saying, you measure with micrometers and then cut with a saw, you know, but it's just, I, it, it's something to me that we just don't do it as exact as we want it to do or want to do. So, you know, with that concept or that question, Nate started brainstorming some ideas, and then we pulled in, uh, you know, Dr. Wheatley and uh, Dr. Grandizio and Dr. Mayers and on board and just started saying, okay, let's just strip it down to see if we could just answer the very basic question. So it, that's how it was spawned. Um, and I think, you know, you can pick apart, you know, did we get enough subjects and we tried doing a power analysis and all that, that stuff. But at the end of the day, 
you know, just doing this myself, you're not as exact as you would like to be. And I think it is something when you put your educator cap on, there is so many ways to improve uh, this with how we teach outside of the operating. And, you know, all the non-surgeons in this cohort are people that have taken physics. They understand the, you know, the arc of motion and just like they understand rotating around a center uh, and all that stuff, but yet they still needed some reinforcement to get the concepts down. And I think um, we should always be striving for laying down that foundation of how we do things and outside of the operating room and then going into the operating room to execute. So. And with this tool, I think it really gives a, a great opportunity to assess and provide some real-time feedback. And and I don't know, we've talked a little bit about education on this before. So with a study like this, you know, what what would you see as as the role for some simulation, whether it's this model or other simulation models? Is it a threshold that learners should meet before they're allowed in the operating room? Or is it a, a concurrent thing that they're learning along the way? Or how would you kind of apply this if you were going to create a new curriculum and start from scratch and kind of build a, a training program? How do you see these kind of simulation models fit into that training? Yeah, I think, you know, this to me, I would break it down into, you know, simulation that requires execution, um, you know, in a step process, uh, knee scopes or scoping a very much in that realm, like how do you get through a diagnostic scope? That should be very streamlined with how someone thinks. I, you know, I've got to hit these 21 points of this exam uh, during that knee scope. This to me is the execution of a, um, a specific part. It's not necessarily the derotational osteotomy. You're just trying to show the concept outside of the body versus the execution of the steps of the, uh, of the surgery. So to me, I would say if I was trying to teach a knee arthroscopy on a knee arthroscopy simulator, I would want my residents or students to be very proficient in the process. Here, I want them to understand the concept, and I want them to understand the concept of the different techniques prior to going to the operating room so that it can really solidify things a lot better. This I would not be using this as much for how do you do the derotational osteotomy techniques or the sequence of the operation. It's just purely this one thing. So I wouldn't use a threshold of did you get within eight degrees of the measurement or 20? I, I, like that's something, you know, I don't even know if I would be able to do that as well. It's, it's more or less to show them that there, there are, is uh, variations in how you approach things. So. I don't know if I answered your question, but uh, I think it is important to simulate stuff outside of the operating room. And I think it's always great when you can give objective criteria to someone on how they're doing. Um, but I wouldn't use this as a threshold of whether or not they can participate in the surgery. Whereas a knee arthroscopy, I would absolutely say, yeah, if you're flunking and getting zero out of 21 on the diagnostic scope, no, you shouldn't be practicing on a patient. You should be absolutely hitting a minimum threshold on how you do stuff. 
Can I ask you guys how you do do, do things at, at your institutions? Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's very insightful. And honestly, I like the way that you think about it as different. I, I guess what's the goal of what we're teaching, right? Because so much of orthopedics is procedural based. And can you work through these steps? And can you troubleshoot these steps along the way? And are there are there things that you can do to practice those steps? And I think that's where most of my brain goes when I'm thinking of simulation. And I'm thinking of hitting a requirement, hitting a, a minimum level of competency beforehand. But to your point, I think it's very insightful to think that this maybe isn't, and, and probably a lot of the things we do aren't quite that kind of procedural based and they're not something that you can necessarily break down into a step-by-step simulation checkoff as much as it is conceptual. And this just provides a much more, I guess, appropriate and applicable way to conceptualize something than paper and pencil or lecture or PowerPoint, right? And I think in the perfect training world, that's what it would be. It would be reading certain criteria, some minimal threshold on the procedural things, and then demonstrating some understanding of a concept on the less procedural things. Um, So it'd be be a, I'd say a, a worthwhile process for me and probably all of us to think through the things that we do on a day-to-day basis. What can we break down into more concept-based education? What can we break down into more procedural-based education and try and help learners separate those things in their mind as well? Um, yeah, so we, and we've used a combination of both. We've got a few simulators at Iowa that we've talked about and, and published on here that we use more as a procedural-based skill. Um, so both kind of the, the typical arthroscopy stuff that that we have simulators for, but then some of the bone reduction fixation models um, and wire navigation guides that we have that we try to get at least some level of proficiency before before the, the junior residents are exposed to doing them in the operating room. But yeah, I guess I haven't really thought too much about kind of breaking it into procedural concepts versus just conceptual techniques and, and what are we really trying to do in the operating room. Let me ask the. Uh, I'm not trying to reverse the role here, but you know, how do you guys do your derotational osteotomies? Do you use pins or uh, do you just do bone markings? Yeah, I was going to ask you. That, that was one of my questions about what's the right way. So I I do pins. So I do I do a pin in the proximal segment and a pin in the distance segment, and then I use the triangles and just try and look down the line and and judge based on pins with triangles. Um, the system that I use does have you know, a little goniometer that you can try and use and kind of attach kind of to the bone and, and judge off of more of a goniometer. But I, I do pins and triangles every time. Yeah, same here. Um, I use pins and, and triangles. Uh, and I think what what's interesting is that I think the technology is going to catch up at some point and be a little bit more precise for us too. So, I, you know, there are some apps I know that I haven't used them, like, right, where you can have somebody hold up a phone and measure it for you or whatever. Um, but I think kind of coming back to the education side of things, we, we um, at Colorado, we have a, a great cadaver lab skills lab. And so um, we do as much, you know, practice as we can. And the, and the residents love getting in there and sawbones, cadavers, simulators, all that kind of stuff. I think is really important. Um, but what's interesting from the conceptual side of things is how vastly different people come into orthopedics with, you know, a background in something, right? So we have 
you know, I think we all know people who have an engineering background, you know, like you mentioned your co-author. Um, and then there's folks who have been doing woodworking for their entire lives. Right. And I, and I think we self-select for the people that are, that have some pretty good spatial understanding. Um, but it is really interesting, the different backgrounds that come in that everybody comes into the, this surgery with a potentially very different idea of where those concepts came from it, whether it's your high school physics class or your college physics class or your real world experience or your engineering experience. And so it's interesting that we all have to come together from these different sides of things to say, like, what is this concept and how are we going to, you know, do it well? Um, and I think one other thing about your paper that I just wanted to mention that I really liked is, is the idea that, that even surgeons can improve with training, right? So like, it's not even really to me just education of residents, right? But how can I, five years into practice, get better, right? Like we should all be striving to get better. And if there's a new way for me to learn how to be more accurate with an osteotomy, fantastic. I want to know, you know, so this is the stuff that can be lifelong learning opportunities, not just for, for medical students or residents. Yeah, no, I, I think it's easy to make a good resident a good resident, or it's harder to make a good resident a great resident. It's really challenging to take a bad resident and make them great or make them good. So these are tools that we have to provide objective measures to say and targets for these people. Uh, and, you know, it's that's any type of simulation training, right? How I approach, you know, just the educational side of um, my hats that I wear. It's just how, how do we boil it down? What do we want you to get out of this? You might not be going into peds, but you're going to go into total joints and you need to understand, you know, so I think it's just something that I try to look by. So now the question for you is as the expert, someone who's put a lot of thought into this and you obviously thought about bone markings and pins and that's why you tested them. So what's the, what's the right way or the, the, what way do you do it? I do them all the ways you said. So goniometers, uh, bone markings, I think it all depends on the operation. If I'm doing, you know, a DDA, a little baby DDH case that I'm doing a, a shortening and, you know, uh, derotational osteotomy, I'm going to use bone markings. I will not use pins. A lot of my adults, I'll use pins unless it's over a long extremity. Like if I'm doing, you know, we're going to put a pin in the thermal condyle and do something up at the hip. To me, that's a long gun sight with a large degree of variability. So I like to get something on the bone. Um, I have created jigs that uh, will snap onto a bone that actually try to do that, but they're they're still in its infancy and very fussy. Um, I do think the ways this will improve is that it, you know, here we're talking about literally archaic triangles or a goniometer. This needs to be very digital, right? So where we're going with total joints and robotics is like, you know, I, I think we're uh, probably in our career time, that's where we'll be with a lot of stuff. But I think even just getting an analog system that whether it's a couple probes or whatnot that just can give you an exact measurement, you know, for some of the deformity cases, like I think we can get away with a degree of error that's acceptable, but there are certain cases where you need to be more spot on. Uh, and I, I find myself the more derotation, hip arthroscopy, derotational osteotomies I'm doing and 
I'm conceptually going into this trying to offload a specific area. I want to be very specific and accurate with what I'm trying to do. It's, it's just a little different patient population. I mean, if you just take PAOs in general, um, when we're rotating the acetabulum, and there are some phenomenal people publishing in this and doing leaps and bounds, uh, you know, how to think about how to be rotated, but still, it's not as specific as it needs to be. Yeah, that's and that's a perfect segue is the next question. I was going to actually branch away from, I would say, our normal and ask you a little bit about your, you obviously think about the hip a lot and think about both sides with the femur and, and the pelvis and PAOs and offloading. So how do you conceptually approach that when you're thinking about kind of the total hip encompassing where that contact stress is and where they're going to be loading when you're doing a standalone PAO or a combination femur and pelvic surgery, how do you try to approach that hip joint as a, as a whole and not just looking at kind of each part individually? I think the, definitely the workhorse workhorse for me. And I think a lot of this is obviously, I think the world of Woody Sankar and just kind of, you know, I would definitely say I'm a Sankar disciple and how he thinks through things. And he's obviously has his pedigree of how he's, thought through things, but, you know, I think the workhorse for a lot of taking off contact pressures is going to be a, a periastellar osteotomy without uh, doing as much with the, um, the femur. I think when I'm doing stuff with the femur, usually I'm trying to optimize a lot more of the lateral uh, musculature or doing stuff with femoral neck links or uh, things of that nature. Um, but I try to really not go there unless I absolutely have to. And I think I would say the bulk of my practice, I'm able to derotate it or offload with a PAL for, for things. I would definitely say I find more interesting is with the hip arthroscopy derotational osteotomies for, you know, excessive femoral antiversion or things like that that can cause a lot of, you know, uh, peritrochantic or perihip pain pathology. I think that's where I think things get very interesting. Yeah, we we have a big a big biomechanics group here at Iowa, and Mike Willie and Robbie Westerman are are two of my partners who do a lot of kind of the older adolescent young adult hip preservation, and we've got a lot of really smart people thinking about the hip. And I think of it when we started doing arthroplasty, and really, you know, people thought that the cup needed to be in that perfect version, and there was, you know, the little the the plotted thing that we all learned and knew where the, that sweet spot was for the cup and then realized like probably where the cup is doesn't specifically matter. It's the total version, right? Of the, the proximal mm -hmm. femur and, and the cup. And so I think that's where we're now getting with hip preservation is it's not necessarily where you put the, where you put the pelvis in a PAO, but it's some combination of what their femoral anatomy is like and, and where their femur is hitting, where they're wearing, what they're dysplasia is and and what their underlying pathology is because i think all of that is very much driving their contact stresses and and their eventual cartilage wear so fortunately um there's lots of people around the country and around the world who are thinking about this a lot and like you said i think we'll eventually get to a point where we have an understanding but i i applaud you guys for thinking about it and i know a lot of a lot of people around the country are putting a lot of thought into this um, dr seeley 
from the perspective maybe of, of some of our listeners who may be residents, fellows early in their career, may not do a lot of hip preservation or are just learning, can you walk us through your exam? Because I think that's something that is, um, it's really interesting to hear people's thought processes on what you use for imaging uh, as well, preoperatively. Like, what do you do from an exam and imaging perspective preoperatively to really know what you're going into, right? Because it's, it's one thing in the OR to know what you're going for. How do you decide what you're going for? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, literally walking through the exam, the first thing you need to do is watch someone walk. It can't be underestimated enough like you can tell a lot from someone's gi you know if you break it down from how they're using their shoulders their hips their knees their rotational profile you know and you don't need a fancy biomechanical lab to do that um and you know if you're brand new into practice uh you know get a way to videotape your patients walking uh and i think that that way you can I still to this day will bring back the videos and just watching, just watch them walk to see if I'm missing anything. Um, I do it with and without their shoes. And I think, you know, Woody Sankar gave a great talk at IPOS this year on just like Charcot Marie Tooth and just like it sees us more than it's, we see it. And, you know, I think the key to a lot of uh, hips are kind of probably through the feet. So you really want to be looking and doing a decent foot exam with that. And then, you know, you get them onto the table and uh, you have them supine and you, you, like right off the bat before you start really talking and doing a lot of provocative testing is just look at their resting external rotation. Um, you know, if someone has a lot of capsular laxity, which, you know, this hip patients have that you can detect, start detecting a lot of asymmetries and detecting that. And then you go through a range of motion with the person full extension with their hips at 90 degrees. And then you do that in the prone position. And you're really trying to look at uh, the rotation of the hip and comparing it side to side. Any asymmetry in your exam, you have to be able to explain. From there, I get into more of the provocative tests of like how I stress the hip joint capsule or how do I, you know, is someone hinging? Do they have trochanteric impingement that they're levering out of the hip? Um, and, you know, kind of break, break it down in that way. Um, the the other thing just to mention about the soft tissue laxity is you should really be uh, doing a bite and score on all your patients. Um, my wife is a clinical geneticist and we have we collaborate on a lot of research together and she would slap me if I didn't put a plug in for that mainly because if you are nine out of nine biting that needs to be evaluated by a geneticist mainly they they need a good cardiac exam. If they're stretching their joints, they're stretching other places, you know, if it's six out of nine, they don't need it. But nine out of nine, that's got to be a referral. They don't need to be there to see you. They need to be there to see someone else. I don't know if that helps or. No, that's super helpful. I would just maybe just add in what imaging you like to get preoperatively, because I do think that's a question for a lot of new new folks. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, a, uh, I get a standing AP pelvis, uh, and from there, you need to really work closely with your radiology techs just to make sure that you get a good standing AP, and that really will allow you to assess your pelvic tilt and then kind of a lot of the different things you're assessing around the acetabulum. 
Um, from there, I get false profile views to look kind of what's going on in the anterior aspect of the cup, as well as what's going on in the anterior aspect of the femur. And then I start getting, if I'm thinking more impingement, and this isn't a dysplasia case, I'm thinking more impingement, I'm going to start getting done views at whether it's 30, 60, you know, it all depends on uh, the thought process there. Any patient that I'm taking to the operating room, regardless of it, if it's an impingement case or a hip dysplasia case, I'm going to get an MRI because uh, I want to know if I need to do anything in In my hands, I'm better with a scope to assess and correct intraarticular pathology. I'm not as good doing it open um, just from a uh, access standpoint. So I, that's what I'm looking there. And then if I'm going to be doing a lot of pelvic work, I'll also be considering getting that CT. Awesome. Thank you. Perfect. Well, um, that was a good, a good intro to a lot of complex hip pathology stated pretty clearly. So we appreciate that. So let's um, shift gears a little bit. We'll go to the stirring the pot aspect of the program now where I've just got a few, a few questions for you um, as our resident expert today to know what the, the right way to do things are. So first question for you regarding hip pathology and PAOs. What percentage of PAOs should ideally have a hip scope with some intracapsular treatment? Yeah, so I've trained it with several different people, and I had one person that would only do a uh, PAO after a hip scope. So I think it's probably not an all or none thing, but I think knowing the status of the intraarticular pathology is extremely helpful. And MRIs, I know that there's there's big improvements on our ability to assess intraarticular pathology. At the end of the day, getting in there and seeing it for yourself allows you to document, more importantly than anything, what's going on. And then to me, it's, you know, it, it does help say, okay, I need to offload this area more. Uh, but I will tell you, I'm doing it probably more often than not to help document Plus, it's easier, in my opinion, to fix labrums and condo flaps and things like that. So I would say, just because it's not an all or none thing, I'd say 60 80%, but that's me shooting off the head. Perfect. Okay, and then a little different hip pathology, um, displaced pediatric femoral neck fractures. Do they go that night? Are they open reduced? And what's the proper fixation construct? Yeah, so I work at uh, in a health system where I take adult calls. So um, I'm on call for level one stuff. Uh, the flip side of that is my adult partners are on call for pediatric femoral neck fractures as well. So if a pediatric femoral neck fracture comes in at two o'clock in the morning, they're probably going to let me know that it's going to be a first case starter go at five or six in the morning. Uh, if it comes in at six six p.m., I, I will probably get a phone call, or one of my partners will get a phone call to come in and fix that that evening for help. And you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type deal. For most displaced femoral neck fractures, I will do them on a fracture table. I will likely do kind of if I need to open reduce, and I really want to see, I will do a, a, like a modified Watson Jones come up over, visualize the reduction, usually can get my bone clamps on there, and then uh, DHS construct. That's for 
you know, threes, fours, uh, twos, ones, you know, I could, you might be able to get away with screw fixation. Um, but you know, to me getting a VHS, something bigger, and then just making sure you fill the neck is really important because you want that compression. Uh, so. Perfect. And let's stick with hip pathology since we're on this bilateral hip pathology. So we'll say a younger patient, maybe six months to five years. If you're treating bilateral hip pathology, should we take care of both hips in the same setting or should we stage it? And if we're going to stage it, how many, how many bone cuts can you make or should you make in one setting? So I, I will do these at the same time. Uh, I, that's a very big conversation to have with the pediatric anesthesiologist at that table to make sure that they're doing okay. Um, but I think with good technique and just making sure that, you know, your blood loss is within a reasonable count, like I will try to get through both. Um, and very rarely, I can only think of less than a handful of cases where I've staged them. Most of the time, I'm going to try to do them in both, uh, in one setting. Uh, and that's with femur and or, and or pelvis. Okay. So, so you're, you're okay with four bone cuts in one setting if the patient's stable and doing well? It's a reevaluation after the first. If blood loss is good, then it will, I will proceed. Perfect. And then last one to segue into our next session is moving to the elbow. So a lateral condyle, lateral condyle fracture um, that's four to seven millimeters displaced. What's your approach? Do you open them mostly? Do you do an arthrogram before reduction and fixation? Do you try and reduce and fix it and then do an arthrogram to make sure you like it? What's, what's the right way to attack these? Yeah, I've never been disappointed with opening one of these up. You know, it's like maybe during the exposure, I displace it more. Uh, but it's, I've just never, I've always left being like, yep, that was more displaced and rotated than I thought. So I will tell you more often than when I open them and I, I fix mine with a screw and I get them moving in four weeks uh, with the plan on bringing them back. My first couple of years in practice, I fixed with pins. I had too many pin-related issues that I was like, it's not worth it. I'd rather have a rounder head that I know I have secure fixation. And to me, conceptually, if you go on to a non-union or a malunion and you have to do a takedown or fix it, you fix it with a screw. So I'd rather just fix it with a screw right off the bat. Uh, so that's my thought process. And it's usually just one right up the lateral condyle that compresses that down. And usually get good a good key in uh, at the joint surface with that. Perfect. Well, you heard it here. That's important uh, ways to take care of hips and elbows. All right, let's um, shift gears to the last segment here, um, the lightning round. So I'll have Julie go first and do the couple of articles that she's prepared, where she'll review um, some recent literature and get get your thoughts and insight into to what they may have found, whether it fits with the way you think about things. Yeah. So since we were talking about lateral condos, let's, let's go with that. So this first one is a uh, international study out of Argentina and uh, Philadelphia and uh, looks at lateral condyle fractures that are associated with elbow dislocations, uh, which is pretty rare and, and requires really multi-center data because this is not something that we see often. So question for you guys, I guess, then is what percentage of these patients that had a, a lateral condo with an 
associated elbow dislocation do you think had poor outcomes according to Flynn's criteria? So, you know, not good or excellent outcomes, but poor outcomes. I read these. Uh, was that was I not supposed uh, to? Okay, that. no, that's it. 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 So I'm, I'm going to say. 34.8%. Nice. Wow. Nice. You're, you're so good. You're so good. Yeah, no, that's okay. We'll take a little bit of a different stack with this then. So um, since obviously Josh read them too. So yeah, it's 35% had poor outcomes. And I think this makes sense to me, right? Um, these were mostly posterior or posterior medial dislocations. Um, they were mostly taken care of very quickly. Um, the biggest challenge, and, and again, this makes sense to me, is stiffness. Um and so they, just like you, you talked about, um, kind of one thing that they talked about is maybe doing screws rather than the K wires to help get those, these kids moving faster. These are mostly males, mostly kind of older kids, eight, eight and up. And, and so I think this, this is a population that you really do need to be worried about getting them moving. So interesting study that I think just points out primarily that there's a much higher complication rate with this than, than even the standard lateral condyles, which I always tell the residents right, is a high, higher complication elbow fracture anyway. So definitely something that needs to be on your radar. Any other thoughts about those particular injuries? Have you seen any of those recently? Back when I was out in Michigan, we published a paper on, it was more on super collars and just like the severity, but really looked at BMI. You know, I was looking through this to see did they have like, you know, was it a BMI? Is it a bigger, bigger they are, the harder they fall concept? And, you know, I think to me, that actually also plays a, a big important role in this. Like, is this a softer person that is not going to want to move? And you know that coming out of the gate, you need to get, get going very quickly. Uh, so to me, if you detect uh, hesitation and reservation with the patient, knowing that you need to understand that arthrofibrosis is a real deal. And out of everything, you know, two things that I hate taking care of, avascular necrosis of the hip and elbow stiffness, you know, just because the bailouts are just not, not good. You know, I've done arthroscopic elbow, you know, uh, lysis of adhesions, I've done it open. They still get stiff. Stiffness creates more stiffness. Uh, so, you know, I think the best way to do it is approach it very aggressively right out of the gate. And I think you, you, to do that successfully, you have to be aggressive with our, your surgery. And this is not just a bone issue. This is very much a soft tissue injury with the elbow dislocation that you got to get a moving. Absolutely. Josh, yeah, I, anything I would say you want to add? Well, honestly, I, I, I thought twice when I read this because I, I fixed with K-wires um, for, for lateral condyles and have been happy with that and haven't perceived significant stiffness. I'm more aggressive to get these kids going, get them into therapy straight away than I am with most other elbows. But as I was reading through this and thinking like, you know, an elbow dislocation with the medial epicondyle, I fix all the hundred percent essentially because I want to get them moving and because I want that elbow more stable so that I can promote motion. So it made me really think since I don't routinely do screws for lateral condyles, I got thinking why, um, and maybe like Julia said, this isn't as common to have a dislocation with a lateral elbow injury from what I've seen. And maybe I just haven't seen enough to, to recognize them when they happen. But certainly I definitely thought twice when I read this, which is why I picked it to talk about, because it's going to make me, I don't know, to be honest, probably the next few I do, I'll uh, fix with the screw and get them moving sooner and see if I, if I like the outcomes better. 
Josh, do you bury your pins or do you leave them out? I leave them out. So you take them out at four to six weeks or? Yeah, four and a half to five weeks. So how often do you look at your x-ray at four weeks and you're like, ooh, I don't know how healed that is. But every time. four weeks that I need to every, take out. Every single time. And honestly, I just convince myself that I've got enough dozens and dozens that I, I fortunately knock on wood and that's why I still use K wires. I just not have non-unions as a problem. That just, that's not something that I've seen other than the late presenter that I see at three weeks and then treat. And in those ones, I actually fix with a screw. Um, so to your point, you know, these, the non-unions are the malunions and things we fix with screws. So why would we use K wires, but I haven't seen non-unions as a problem. So even though I look at it and think, man, that thing's just not healed quite enough. Um, I see yes, them it. all back. And when I see them back, fortunately they've all healed, which is why I just, I haven't felt the the pressure to change what I do, but this, this really got me thinking. So, you know, just kind of going back to what we were kind of previously, like the, our health system, it's a, it's an integrated, you know, health system that has its own health insurance plan. So we essentially, after I do a procedure, I get a receipt for everything that I just spent, right? So the difference in cost, if you do it versus K wires versus screws is literally 250 bucks. So to me, if you were to play that out and say, okay, you put in the non-union, obviously this goes through the roof from a cost standpoint. So to me, I just don't see it, at, especially, you know, to me, you, you're going to, I wouldn't always bury a pin, but, you know, you're going to be coming back to the operator. So to me, it's like a wash in that scenario. But say at least it's, I, I don't see a huge first operation, big change in cost. Yeah, no, I, I, it's a simple, a simple study, but like Julia said, sometimes I'm getting enough of them round up to be able to put a number to it. And something in that 35% range is certainly enough to make, make you think twice about what, what we're doing to keep these elbows moving. Yeah. So we'll move to the, uh, the next one, because this has got some interesting themes to talk about, too. Um, so this is refracture following operative treatment of pediatric both bone forearm fractures. And, uh, and this is out of CHOP. Uh, Dr. Lawrence is the senior author on this. And um, this is something that, you know, we come back to a lot. Um, I think every time I have a, a refracture, you know, I re-review things and uh, there's a lot of literature out there about this, but this one in particular, I think it really look, it has a, a very high number of patients. So 402 patients identified, um, 256 had intramedullary fixation, 146 with plate fixation. Uh, the Patients that were younger uh, had, or, or excuse me, the patients that had IM nails were younger, patients with plates were older. And they looked at, you know, kind of all those different subsets that, that certainly we always talk about in our fracture conferences, right? So well, how long till the plate was, or the nails were removed, you know, um, are you looking at angulation versus refracture? So lots of topics to look at here, but ultimately they found that the refracture rate following operative treatment of both bone forearm fractures is about 5.5%, which is consistent with previous literature. It was similar between their IM nail and, and plate fixation groups. Patients less than 10 years of age had a higher rate of refracture. 
And uh, for those patients that had single bone fixation, they saw a higher refracture rate with intramedullary fixation. And one of the things that I wanted to point out too was the, the time. So it's about 21 months to refracture in all, all comers. And then patients that had hardware removals followed by a refracture, it was about two months on average after hardware removal, which is pretty consistent, which unfortunately with what I've seen is it does tend to happen pretty quick. So thoughts on that, Dr. Seeley, what, what's your, you know, when do you plate, when do you use IM nails? I'm interested in the receipt thing on, on that one because uh, <laughs> I wish we got a receipt. Honestly, I'd probably be more cost conscious if I did. Yeah, the, the amount of uh, drapes that I opened uh, before all that was, you know, that's the first thing that I, I was made aware of. So uh, I, I I like this study uh, a lot. I think Todd did a really nice job just kind of painting uh, the picture. Over the years, I've definitely changed how I do things, and I've become probably less aggressive. You know, came into practice, and I flex-nailed everything. I uh, had a couple EPL ruptures, and that really, that was not as fun to take care of, post-operatively. You know, you're coming in, you paint the picture of the family that I'm just going to slide this co-hanger down the center of the bone, and then all of a sudden, you can't get the thumbs up. Uh, I didn't like that complication, so definitely pivoted and was doing more, I, I would say, not in the ulna, but more plating in the radius. I find myself, if I have to open or do something, conceptually, if you're making it already an incision that's, you know, an inch, inch and a half, just extend it a little bit bigger and just get a plate on there. Uh, and, you know, to me, it, that just made more sense. But then it was like, you know, do we really need to be fixing the radius? Like if you can get it, if you can get the ulna straight, you can accept, you know, a little bit of uh, translation uh, with that radius. And uh, I've gone to being more aggressive with just pinning the ulna, getting that straight, and then, you know, accepting a component of, you know, a, a residual, small residual deforming the radius. And I've been happy with it. Um, but this year in particular, I've had more refractures with non-operative treatment than I have operative treatment. And it, to me, it's like I was trying to look through their single bone fixation and being like, how many rebroke through the fixated ulna versus the non-fixated radius? So, you know, that's kind of my thoughts on this. It's, it's, maybe I'll go back to plating everything. Yeah, I'm a pretty aggressive plater, and this kind of makes me feel better about that. And I usually fix both bones if I'm there. Um, you know, I think sometimes you don't have to for sure, but their study showed that um, the patients that just had ulnar fixation were actually more likely to fail than patients that just had radial fixation when you looked at the IM nail group, which is sort of interesting to me as well. So, because I, I do think there's that idea of just fixing the ulna, right, and letting the radius kind of flop around. But then I think there's also quite a bit more rotational deformity, speaking of rotational deformities, than, than you recognize, you know. So those younger patients that may remodel, sure, but I don't know how much that rotation remodels either. Because it really also sucks to have a patient come in that can't pronate or supinate, you know. That's a real hard conversation to have. So, uh, so this is, you know, despite being, you know, one of those mundane topics, I think it, you can really get into the weeds with these both bones. Absolutely. Absolutely. It just, it, it goes back to the, the, the teaching that you never just fix one bone. Right. I feel like that's, that's the starting ground for everyone. And then I think all of us are trying to, to find ways to cheat that and to, to get by without doing 
without doing that. And like Julia said, I think there's a dozen or more studies that have similar similar outcomes that I think you start you start risking refracture a little bit when you're only fixing one. To me, you know, I have you know your mentor sitting on your shoulder saying like, why can't you uh, you know treat that in the cast? And you're like, damn it, I don't I don't have the same ability to wedge and do that. I you know I feel like I give up. But, you know, it is interesting, like definitely there is an ebb and flow in a pendulum. To me, I'm only as good as my last complication because I'm always thinking about it. Uh, so it's just like there's always room for improvement, that's for sure. Perfect. And then I'll, I'll do the last one here for the lightning round. And this is this is something, again, I've I've put in a bit of thought. So post-reduction MRI predicts residual dysplasia 10 years after open or closed reduction. So this is out of um, Boston Children's. Dr. Novias is the lead author. I think a really important study. Shocking results, I would I would have to say, that they looked at 42 patients, 47 hips, who underwent open or closed reduction with a minimum of 10-year follow-up. And what was shocking to me is that 51% of the hips were good hips, didn't require any further treatment, acetabular index, um, less than two standard deviations above age and sex-specific populations, and 49 did not survive and had some other intervention or, or residual dysplasia. And really, this is an MRI, MRI-based study where those post-reductions MRIs, which they've been getting post-reduction MRIs in Boston for a long time. I guess this is where now to me the rubber starts hitting the road where they're showing um, several different MRI findings post-reduction, which are in, in their cohort at least very predictive of a poor hip and residual dysplasia at 10 years. These kids were six months on average age when they got reduced. So these aren't, you know, super late diagnosis and super high dislocations that were two to three years. These are, I would say, the pretty standard uh, baby hip dislocations who underwent reduction and their MRI findings to me um, were pretty indicative of poor outcomes down the road. I do not get MRIs, so I get CT scans to confirm reduction and confirm that my cast is good and holding the hip in the ideal spot. And one of the arguments that I've made for seven years now of not getting MRIs is I don't really know what the MRI is going to tell me because I haven't got them and don't look at all these things. That's been my argument um, of just doing an interop. I get an O-arm spin and confirm right there. And then that it's reduced and my cast is good and I'm happy so I can, I can put it to bed. But now that I'm seeing results and seeing that some of these MRI findings and things that, these, that they've been writing about for a while in Boston now have 10-year outcomes to suggest that 50% of these hips didn't do well, certainly makes me think twice about getting an MRI post-reduction. And then I guess the next question is, now what do we do about this? Because these were reduced hips that just had, I don't know if it's more dysplasia or, again, they, they've got a list of different MRI findings that they found that predict. But I'd kind of be curious to to hear both of your guys' thoughts. Are Number one is, would you have guessed that 49% of hips had a failure endpoint at 10 years post-reduction? And... Is this something that, that you guys are doing? Are you getting MRIs? Are you doing CTs? Or what are your thoughts on this? The So I love studies like this. Unfortunately, I don't have the ability to get an MRI postoperatively. And that was probably one of the biggest adjustments from coming from CHOP to Geisinger. It's just the there's only so many resources. And when you're not in 
uh, a standalone children's hospital, they have to prioritize the head bleed over your baby head. And that's just the, the nature of the business. And that's probably never going to change on that. So I do rely a lot on, you know, a, a CT as well as my arthrograms um, to really try to do this that, that way. I think, you know, the other studies that look at kind of perfusion MRIs postoperatively uh, with, you know, predicting whether or not you need to change a cast uh, I think are very valuable. I think these are they're great studies because they're, they're they're giving you immediate feedback on how to change things. To me, I, I take this and I use this as a way to counsel people, right? So, you know, you just put the family through a very stressful operation, putting the baby through, you know, a procedure where you're 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 then, you know, making it very visual by putting them in the cast. Uh, every family is going to be have one of those moments of like, what did I just get myself into? But I think that's where you have to start laying out, like, you know, how this is going to play out over the next 10 years and having to repeat that stuff, I think is very important. I think this gives you those tools to be able to do that. I try with my arthrograms, I try with like intraoperative assessments to recreate that. At the end of the day, anyone that is taking care of hip dysplasia, you need to follow these kids, you know, and as someone that takes care of older teenagers and young adults that end up having issues they could be doing fine until they you know something just pushes them over the edge um and you know i am hard in my practices i do not recommend surgeries for asymptomatic people i will follow them uh and i will try to counsel them and let them know what to look for so that we can go to the next step but if you're truly asymptomatic I am not doing things, but I can definitely say you're at a higher risk. We need to watch that. Yeah, those are great points. I, I don't take care of baby hips currently in my practice, so I, I can't give any any sort of wisdom. But I do think this study is super interesting in, in that, you know, the, the two things that they found the highest accuracy for were, you know, measurements that showed reduction concentricity and then, you um, the cartilaginous component, right? So the limbus thickness. And I think intuitively that makes sense, but it's interesting because I, I think there's so much remodeling that happens with the acetabulum, right? And so the way that they've portrayed things and, and identify things in, in their system and in their study, I think it, it will be interesting to see this study repeated at other centers, right? Because can you get those exact same cuts and, and, you know, what does that look like in your patient population versus their po patient population? So this is something that I think definitely bears repeating um, at other institutions, but ultimately it is about counseling, right? It's about telling these patients, Hey, this is a really good sign, you know, other than just, is it reduced or is it not reduced? And is your tension and what was, you know, so uh, I think super interesting study and, uh, one that I'm going to earmark for our, our discussion with the residents for sure. Perfect. Well, that, that'll bring us to the close of today's session. And Dr. Seeley, we really, really appreciate you spending time. I know, like I said, I know you've been traveling and had a lot of other obligations. So to take some time and, and make an evening to spend with us, we really do appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. You guys are doing great stuff. So please continue it. And I really do appreciate the opportunity to share with them. And then the other thing for our listeners is, you know, having Dr. Celion brings up a, a different dimension and a different thought that we don't generally spend any time. We talk about, you know, where you train and the healthcare system that you're in as far as, uh, you know, what intervention or if you have senior partners or if you have other 
Peds faculty with you, but the other thought of a, a healthcare system that is different in terms of how the hospital is set up and whether it's at a, a state-run institution like so many of us practice or or different things, those are thoughts and those are topics and conversations that also influence the way we practice and and the way that you take care of patients and the interventions that you do or don't provide. So if any of our listeners have other thoughts um, kind of on that topic about the healthcare system, we'd be interested to hear your thoughts and we can certainly read and address any questions or comments that others may be able to contribute as well. So we appreciate your time tonight and um, look forward to seeing you down the road. Yeah, no, I appreciate it.